The transfiguration has always been a tricky subject for me. Not because I've any trouble accepting the amazing moment when Peter, James, and John see Jesus as he truly is for the first time, or that Moses' face shone like the moon after having had so many close encounters with God on the slopes of Mount Sinai, but because whether or not these incredible stories are historical fact or fanciful metaphor, the message is the same. Getting close to God will change you. And I can't even begin to tell you how much my heart aches for that change, for the veil to be finally lifted, for my eyes to be finally opened, to have my heart pried open and my soul shaped and molded until it more closely resembles that of my teacher and savior. I want it badly. But after 20 years of ministry and theological education, sometimes, sometimes I still feel like I'm far away from that spiritual transformation, almost as far away as I was when I started. And so whenever we get to this Sunday, the Sunday we celebrate the big reveal of Jesus' identity, I struggle to enjoy it as much as I should. Because I can't help but ask, when will my transformation come? What is it that's holding me back? Now, it's not my custom to talk a whole lot about myself as church and worship are not about me. They're about God and God alone. And like every other prophet and preacher before me, I'm just here to act as an intermediary, to facilitate the relationship between you and God. And most of the time, that means taking as much of me out of the equation as possible, unless I want to crack a joke or something, in which case I make a very soft target. But sometimes, mine is the only experience I can draw on with any surety. And on a topic as sensitive as spiritual transformation, I don't want to make too many assumptions about where you are on your journey and what that experience has been like for you. I'm just hoping that you'll see enough of your struggles in mind that my experience speaks to yours. So back to that question. What's holding me back? Well, I think I can sum it up in two words. Fear and shame. Now, in my case, my fear is a fairly common one, the fear of failure. The very idea of not achieving a goal or letting someone down or hurting someone's feelings or, God forbid, making a mistake is often quite enough to set me off. And in this way, I am totally a product of my culture and upbringing. I mean, we live in a world in which doing well or being only good isn't nearly enough. You have to be perfect all the time, every time, with absolutely no margin for error. In fact, you have to be better than perfect because what passed for perfection yesterday is now the new standard. So the next time you go to do your thing, you've got to be even better. Because no matter how good you get or how much you do, more is always expected. Nothing and no one is ever good enough. Which is great for consumerism, 
which is more than happy to exploit our relentless drive for perfection by constantly pressuring us to meet and exceed its outrageous expectations while selling us an endless array of products and services, all of which are guaranteed to make us better, happier, and more successful. However, that same pressure leaves a lot of us with our self-esteem in the toilet, always afraid of what's going to happen to us if we fail or we mess up. Which brings us to the shame part. Because for me, I'm not just disappointed when I fail to live up to my ideals or reach my goals. I'm ashamed. I mean, there's huge pressure on all of us to measure up in our, in our family life, in our personal lives, in our work life, and within the community. And if you fall short, people can be pretty harsh about it. But no one can be harder on us than we can on ourselves, because even if it's in just a small way, we know that the people and things we care about are suffering. And they're suffering because we couldn't get our act together. Also tends to drown out any sense of success we might feel because success was the minimum standard. It was the very least that people expected of us. And so when we fail to make the grade, our shame mentally cancels out some of those successes because we have to be perfect all the time, every time. And it's a tough cycle to bust out of, especially if you're a person of faith. I mean, God lays out some pretty explicit guidelines for us in the book of Exodus. Don't lie. Don't kill. Don't steal. And at first, they seem pretty easy until you try to live by them and discover just how difficult that can be. Especially when there's doozies on the list like never putting anything before God, or coveting something, or disagreeing with your parents, or even thinking about being with anyone other than your partner. And as Christians, Christ calls us to go even further. We're to fight for justice, even if it costs us our lives. We're to give without hesitation, even if that puts us in a pickle. We're to forgive and love without condition, no matter how many times we're hurt, all of which obligate us to navigate a veritable sea of tough topics from white privilege to indigenous land claims, from interculturalism to intersectionality from assisted suicide to abortion, from gender and sexuality to homelessness in Halifax, and God help me, I want to take all of it on board and start living out the love, justice, and equity that's demanded of me now, without mistakes, offering constant love and consistent support all the time, every time. But I do make mistakes all the time, often from ignorance, which isn't really an excuse, but also unthinkingly or in moments of heightened emotion. And every single time I fail to live up to what God and Christ expect of me, I'm ashamed. And that shame holds me back because it focuses my mind on my missteps and my head reels with a thousand what-ifs. My heart is sick at the thought of what I've done or haven't done or maybe should have done differently, and I'm terrified of doing it again, of failing again. 
So I stay quiet when I should speak. I withdraw when I should engage. I don't start things, things I genuinely want to do for fear of failing. At every step, my fear and my shame, they hold me back. Keep me from being the person I want to be the person I sincerely believe God is calling me to be. And if that's you too, well, you're not alone. And let me assure you, you're certainly not the first. As Paul hints at in his letter to the Corinthians, the law that God gave Moses has its drawbacks. Because not only was it incredibly hard to live up to, it also fostered a certain legalism, uh, in the way we went about it. For example, I could be very diligent about never bowing down and worshiping another god or idol. In fact, I'd find that really easy. What isn't easy, though, is not prioritizing other things like money or personal safety higher than God, who often ends up playing second fiddle. But I could argue having never actually bowed down and worshipped a fancy gold ingot or carved wooden block, that I'd faithfully fulfilled my obligation to God because I'd obeyed the exact wording of the law to the letter, even though I'd kind of left the spirit of the law lying on the floors in tatters. So yeah, it's, it's not always the best way of approaching the law. You also run into the problem that a lot of these laws, as written, don't really cover the length and breadth of human experience. For example, don't steal. Simple, right? Well, what if you're starving? Can you steal a loaf of bread? Or what if you're being taxed so heavily you can't afford bread? Does that mean the government is stealing? Or what if your insurance company won't cover the cost of a life-saving medication? Has that been stolen from you? Or what if you tease and belittle someone to the point that they lose their self-esteem? Did we steal it? So as you can see, while the law is blunt and straight to the point, there's a lot of nuance in how it can and should be applied, which can leave them feeling a bit fuzzy around the edges when we try to apply them. And as any lawyer will tell you, fuzziness is not a desirable thing in a law because now you've no idea if you've broken it or not, or if it even applied. And then there's the way the law can diminish our sense of accomplishment because in our world, not breaking the law is a minimum expectation. We don't break out the champagne whenever we don't kill someone for cutting us in line at the Costco. But by the same token, we take very little pride in all the times we do follow the law and only end up counting our mistakes, which, as you might imagine, can get very depressing. All of which stunts our spiritual growth, because there's some of us out there that think that they've reached the spiritual mountaintop so long as they follow the letter of the law, while the rest of us feel ashamed by our inability to live up to it. Either way, our transformation is halted. We stay stuck where we are. Our eyes veil to the deeper truths that we would know and embrace. And I sometimes wonder if that's why Moses really wore the veil. Not because his glowing face scared the Israelites, like the Bible says, but because whenever they looked at him, they felt ashamed. 
ashamed to stand in the presence of one who had so clearly spirit-led, ashamed by how poorly they measured up to his example, especially given that at that precise moment they were pretty much standing in the ashes of the golden calf that they'd fashioned. And with every mistake they made on their journey, they fell deeper and deeper into that pit, their shame blocking their spiritual growth. And things weren't all that different with Jesus. His new teachings were hard, and they were often at odds with accepted wisdom. His behavior bordered on the bizarre, though many marveled at his compassion. And at first, I can only imagine this must have intensified the shame and amplified the fear of those who heard and saw him. But Jesus was different. For him, God's incomparable love for us included the concept of forgiveness. That when we make mistakes, and we are going to make mistakes, that it wasn't an all-or-nothing deal. We could learn from them. We could grow from them and try again and again, as many times as we needed with God's blessing, never having lost God's love or God's grace. This revelation radically redefined our relationship with God and the law delivering us from our shame and allowing us to continue our spiritual journey. But this wasn't the only revelation Jesus brought. By his death and resurrection, Jesus delivered us proof that God's will would overcome, regardless of error or circumstance, and that pain and death had no power over us. And this revelation liberated us from fear because ultimately, no matter how badly we messed up, God's will would be done. And no matter what became of us, God's love and care for us wouldn't stop, even at the borders of death, and our lives would continue. And for many, this lifted the veil, allowing them to strive without feeling further shame for their past, and to act boldly in Jesus' name without further fear of failure, because now they understood that it was all in the striving and the amount of effort we expend in trying to reach those lofty goals and how well we reflect God's glory into the world along the way. In the teachings and person of Jesus Christ, those first disciples found their freedom. And so can we. But here comes the tricky part. Now we've got to let go of the fear, of the shame, and love ourselves and others past it. And that's not going to be easy because if you're anything like me, your head is so full of words like must and ought and should and need that relentlessly prey on you, increasing your fear and doubling your shame, and it's a hard cycle to break when everyone and everything around you drives home that same destructive message that neither you nor your efforts are ever good enough, especially when we're blind to our successes and encouraged to dismiss and minimize them as incomplete or not enough. But like I said, Paul offers us a way out to embrace the forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ 
to be emboldened by the presence of the Spirit, to place our hope, faith, and trust in God who says, you are enough. That righteousness is in the striving. And on that basis, and the words of Frank L. Crouch, we have reason to act with hope and boldness. Not timidly, not reluctantly, not with anxiety over how outsiders or even insiders might perceive, understand, or oppose our ministries, not shrinking back from uncertainty over our future or the future of our congregation or denomination, but boldly placing the life and future of our ministries in the hands of the God who assures us that their impacts will endure that what we do matters, that we matter, and in so doing, be transformed, maybe not all at once, but forever by the law of love that God and Jesus have written on our hearts. So let go and be transformed. Amen.